Can I add my welcome to you? My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. Delighted to welcome you as we open the Bible together. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Acts chapter 1. We are starting a new series today. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians for much of the last year. It's our habit to work through books and to get something of a sense of what God says uh, through his word in a kind of systematic way. And today we're going to start a series the next two, three months looking at the book of Acts. This is a remarkable book. It's uh, Luke's second volume, comes just after the Gospel of Luke. And it tells an absolutely remarkable story of the explosion of the church. I want to read to you the first uh, 14 verses of the book, and then I'll pray. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to the ascended, after he had given his commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, after his death, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I'm asking a political question. Are you going to overthrow the Roman government? Are we going to have freedom as the people of Israel? Are you going to fulfill the promises uh, that we see in the Old Testament? Are you going to come and establish your kingdom fully on this earth? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You don't know when we're going to come back. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let me pray. Lord, I want to pray that we would be a people who take seriously this remarkable story of your work in the world through your people. We want to be people who hear your voice and hear your invitation to be about your business, living every part of our lives for your glory. We want to pray now that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would lead us as we hear your word and we hear this example of these people, Lord. Would you provoke us and stir us up 
to become the people you've called us to be? Would you shape our lives as we hear your word and we reflect on your invitation to us today? Amen. Amen. So I said to you, this is a remarkable book. It's the origin story of the church, the Christian movement. This is Luke's second volume. It comes just after Luke's gospel. And it really describes the first 30 years, about that period, um, the first three decades of the Christian movement. And when you step back and consider this book, you must see the remarkable story that it represents. It begins with just 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem. They are just praying, a fledgling movement of those around. You heard them, they're the apostles who are with Jesus, even some of his family, and they're praying. And then fast forward to the end of the book, nearly 30 years later, and we will have witnessed the explosion, the, the spreading of this Christian movement from Jerusalem and then all the way around the Mediterranean. So first to Syria and to Antioch and to Cyprus and to what we now understand Turkey, and you'll hear familiar names that you've, uh, Ephesus and Philippi and across over to Greece and eventually into Rome. What we see is this constant pattern of the apostles, the church leaders, establishing the church in urban centers around this whole region. And as they do it, they, they do really a remarkable thing. They just go to synagogues, they go to uh, kind of public squares, and they tell of this wandering Jewish teacher and his remarkable claim to be the Son of God, to be God in the flesh. And remarkably, many thousands respond. The churches are planted. Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, respond to this remarkable declaration that the apostles are making. And the first question that you have to look at, and why I think it's so exciting to look at the book of Acts, if you're coming at this, maybe particularly if you're not a Christian, or perhaps you're kind of maybe had a faith, superficial faith growing up, but you don't really, haven't really surrendered your life to Christ. I think anyone has to ask, how do we explain the triumph of the Jesus movement against the odds? What we see in the book of Acts is profoundly unlikely. You know, we, we're so used to kind of, we know how the story ends and we know that what happens and we kind of know that we're 2,000 years later and the church has established itself and we see all sorts of um, manifestations of the growth of the church, but go back to the beginning of this story, and what we see is absolutely a triumph against the odds. The movement that Jesus establishes in his lifetime should have crumbled after his death, and yet that's exactly the opposite of what we see. Even more remarkable is when you consider that this story begins with the resurrection, you heard it at the beginning there, it's, it, talks, it recounts how Jesus was with his apostles and with, for 40 days after his resurrection, showing the many convincing proof of his, uh, the fact that he had risen from the dead. He eats with them, he teaches them, they learn about the kingdom of God. And this resurrection at the center of the Christian story almost makes it even more remarkable that the foundational truth that this whole movement is built upon is that Christ rose from the dead. 
if you're coming at this from the outside, you say, why were the disciples so convinced that they'd seen Jesus alive? Remember, of course, that they were willing to die for this fact. Many of those, those apostles who followed Christ would go on to die for the fact that they had seen him raised from the dead. So they certainly believed that they had seen him resurrected. Remember, they were in the same culture as we are. They don't expect anyone to rise from the dead. How did Christ confound their expectations? And then we would go on and, and see something of the, the impact that this resurrection had on these apostles. I think the best example is look at a man like Peter. At the end of the Gospels, he uh, is cowering in fear. He, has to, he denies Christ three times. He denies him three times. He cannot, he's not willing to be associated with Christ because of the shame and the fear that he has of the fact that he may well expect to be punished in a kind of similar way as Christ is being punished. And then we just see him a completely changed man by the time we get to the book of Acts. We see him willing to proclaim Christ in the temple, the very location where the ruling elite, the Jewish elite, had just uh, sentenced Christ to death as a criminal. Peter goes on with these remarkable words. He says, this Jesus delivered up to, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He kind of speaks to the crowd of assembled Jews on the day of Pentecost, a little bit after the passage we're looking at, and tells them, you crucified him and killed him, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter goes back to the people who killed him and says, you know this Jesus you killed? He's been raised up. And he's willing to challenge and confront the assembled Jewish people. And we say, how do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of a, of a disciples who are cowering in fear and their transformation to boldly proclaim, and we'll see this all the way through the book of Acts, to boldly proclaim Christ, except for the fact that they have seen Christ alive. That the resurrection, the visible, tangible, remember Thomas touches him, his experience of Christ changes them. It changes them, and so they cannot but tell people about the Christ that they have encountered. But even beyond the apostles, you have to say, well, why were so many people willing to believe the claims that the disciples made? This is Jesus, a Jewish manual laborer, an untrained rabbi, mocked and accused by the Jewish authorities. And yet many thousands... By the time of the end of the book of Acts, many thousands have put their faith in him. Anybody looking in has to say, why does Christ buck the trend of history? Why does he make such a profound claim to be God in the flesh and yet capture the hearts of thousands and millions? Even despite the opposition that they faced. Again, as you go through the book of Acts, we will see the profound pressure that this movement faces, both from the Jewish authorities and the secular authorities. The fact that they are will, some of them will die for their faith. And yet they were willing to put their faith in him and to follow him. So that is the book of Acts, and I'm really excited for us to look at it. But what I want to look at with you today is how Jesus predicts all of this. Jesus points, gives us a kind of narrative arc of this whole story. And really what it is is proof that Christ is in control of all of what's happening. That this is not a human movement of men and women just kind of boldly proclaiming it in their own strength and kind of the triumph of the apostles. This is not really 
they're not really the main actors in this story. As you look at the book of Acts, one commentator said this should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Others would say this is the Acts of Christ. What you must see is that Christ is orchestrating it all. And so the the verse I want to focus on with you this morning is that promise, that invitation in verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even in that that sequential structure of that sentence, Jesus is predicting exactly what we go on to see in the book of Acts. The first seven chapters describe uh, the mission in Jerusalem, the assembled disciples in Jerusalem. Then chapters 8 to 11 describe Judea and Samaria. The the gospel is going out to the, the kind of wider region. You see Philip preaching to the Samaritans. By the way, just remember, this is absolutely remarkable. To a Jewish people who are used to investing in their own culture, the idea that the gospel is then going out to the Samaritans, and the, you know, beyond the Jewish people, is a little bit surprising. And then it goes on, and, and chapters 11 to 28 will describe the way that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. It goes all around the Roman Empire at the time. And, but you must hear, there are two, two levels, really, to what Jesus is saying here. First of all, there's an instruction Jesus is essentially saying to the apostles here, you will tell others what you have seen from me. You are witnesses to my work in the world, and you will go out. You will complete my mission. You see, there's a kind of incompleteness about Christ's mission at this moment. Christ has come into the world. He's about to ascend into heaven, but he has not finished his work. I think this is summed up best in Isaiah 52. It says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That is actually really describing the work of Christ, that as Christ comes into the world, the Lord has bared his holy arm. The Lord has revealed himself. Christ has entered into the world, but then... The nations shall see his arm. Now, how does that make sense? How can we make sense of that promise? Are all the nations there in Christ's ministry? Well, no, Christ's ministry is largely to the Jewish people. There are, there are moments where he's, where he's speaking to the Gentiles around him. The only way we make sense of that is to say Christ has not finished his mission until he says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses. You will go out and continue my work in the world revealing Christ to the nations, to transparently point to Christ in their, with their lives and their words. But the, you, so you can understand this verse as an invitation. Say, come and participate with me and be my witnesses. But you must also hear this as a promise. He says, I will make you my witnesses. I will make you my witnesses. I will accomplish this in you. I will empower you. Christ is orchestrating the events of the book of Acts. And actually, the one way you can see it right at the beginning, the first verse we read, he said, in the first book, O Theophilus, he's writing to Theophilus, perhaps his patron, and he's not really that relevant. He says, in the first book, Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Saying in Luke's, in my first book, the gospel, I I dealt with what I began to do and teach, what, what Christ began to do and teach. The implication is Christ is continuing to be at work in the book of Acts. 
that Christ is continuing to act and work through the apostles. So you must hear this as an invitation and a promise. But of course, you must hear that this is for us too. In fact, you know, one way you can see that is right at the end of the book of Acts, that this is, in a sense, a kind of un- ongoing chain. Just as Christ commands the apostles that they will be his witnesses, so too he is inviting all believers who come after them to continue this work. And why do I say that? It's because the work of Acts is kind of unfinished. You can see that the way the book ends. This describes uh, Paul in Rome, as I say, nearly 30 years later. And it said, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. He's in, under house arrest, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's kind of almost unremarkable. It says, actually, the book of Acts doesn't have this kind of wow moment of completion because the mission continues. It promises that they will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Well, they've got to Rome, which perhaps is the kind of center of the earth at the time, but it's not the ends of the earth. So when, I, when you hear Christ's invitation and promise to the apostles in this passage, you must hear it to us too. When you hear these words, you will receive power. I'm speaking to you, the believer now. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and I'll take it for us to the ends of the earth. Why do we need to hear this? Well, I think many of us are ignoring this invitation, this promise that Christ is making to us. Many Christians are passive and indifferent and fearful when it comes to this idea of being witnesses to Christ. And actually, as you go through the book of Acts, you'll see there's a profound contrast with the way the the apostles and the early church are responding to this invitation the way we do. I think many of us are indifferent to the abject need of the world to connect with the risen Christ. The apostles, in contrast, have a kind of urgency about them. They are anything but indifferent. They have been confronted by the fact that Christ is now the risen Lord. He is the rightful king. He has been raised up and ascended to the throne at the right hand of the Father. And so all rightly should bow and worship him. There is something fundamentally at odds with that. They they witness as they go around the Roman Empire. They say, we see a people who are ignoring Christ, have no reference for him, and have no, um, no love for him. And saying there's something profoundly wrong with that. And we, they feel an urgency to address that. So I think we're indifferent. They're, they have an urgency. We are passive. Some of us say, well, I might, I might witness about Christ. I might share something of who he is if, it, if the opportunity presents itself to me. Maybe someone asks me about my faith. But I would say the apostles are intentional. They are, they're not uncontrolled they are led by the Spirit to pursue opportunities, to go from city to city with a sense of urgency and intentionality. Actually, really, I think this mission, this, this invitation that Christ has given them has become their life's work. Should it be ours? Should it be our life's work? Should it be a key priority of our lives to be a witness to Christ, to take this message into the world? I think that's the only implication that you can take from what Christ is saying to the apostles in this moment. 
And the third thing, we're fearful. Our fear of what people will think of us, that fear that holds you back from even telling someone you're a Christian. You know, I promise you, if you've gone to work and been around people for a while and they don't know that you're a Christian, I, I want to argue that fear is often a part of why you haven't done that, why you haven't felt able to be honest with the people around you because you're, you're un, maybe unconsciously or consciously fearful about what they think of you. Fear of man. Fear of the world. Fear of just being a little bit awkward and people, because we don't talk about religion in this culture, or perhaps fear because you kind of think maybe they're going to associate me in a certain way. That fear is such an enemy of Christ's calling here to be witnesses, to take on the invitation that Christ is giving us. And you know what? We're fearful because we're worried about opposition, but the apostles, they're expecting opposition. It's completely the opposite. They expect to have to face opposition as they do it. And we'll see it as we unpack the book of Acts. They're not threatened by it. In fact, if anything, I think there's almost a kind of spirit of encouragement. At one point, uh, Acts chapter 4, they are kind of almost rejoicing that they have had the, had the, um, be counted worthy that, they, that they, will be, they will suffer for Christ. I think not just as individuals, I think the church in this country suffers greatly because it is worried about causing offense to our culture. And there's a kind of, always a kind of curating and, and a kind of management around the opinion of others and the institutional church, the fear of being associated in some way, of just coming out and saying, saying, you need Christ. Isn't that a tragedy? I believe strongly in the secularization of this nation the last 50 years or so. The church bears as much responsibility as anything for that because they have been silent and been too afraid and been fearful about the opinions of others and that has held them back from being an authentic witness and being willing to challenge the culture. I want to turn this on its head, guys. And so you come at it this with fear and passivity and indifference. Have we forgotten the privilege of being witnesses? Have we forgotten how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? That Christ would include us. That Christ would give us the, the par, a, a partial responsibility, if we can put it like that, to take this news of Christ's resurrection, his lordship, into the world. Isn't that a privilege? So, let's unpack the invitation and let's unpack the promise. You are Christ's witnesses. If you're a Christian today, that is what Christ is saying about you. It's not just something you do, it's who you are. Your life is meant to be a transparent display of the light of Christ. Just as Christ has shone his light into your life, a faithful Christian will continue to then shine that light. Imagine kind of like a, a glass candle or something like that where, where you can see the light that has been shone into your life. Christ is calling you to be a living testimony, a living witness statement that demonstrates the reality of Christ. So what does it mean then to be a witness? What is Christ talking, saying when he calls them to be witnesses? Well, I think we can understand this at two levels. The first thing Christ is saying is you almost have a the apost what we call the apostolic witness. In one sense, he's saying these apostles have a very specific responsibility because they were uniquely those who witnessed Christ's ministry, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. And they, that's why they record it in the Gospels and, the, and it's reflected in the New Testament teaching. 
It says, we as the church continue to tell the story of God's encounter with humanity. Of Christ's death and his resurrection. And what it says is, if, if it's true that God has entered into our world, and we can say humanity has touched God, which is, I think, what we, how we describe the Gospels. Say so humanity has touched God. God has revealed himself to us. Then, they, then it is so important that the church holds on tightly to this apostolic witness, that it doesn't distort it, doesn't, but it guards it and protects it and proclaims this story to the world. There's an ongoing responsibility of every generation to pass on this apostolic witness, these gospel documents. So that's one level. We can say they have a unique role as apostolic witnesses, and we continue to pass on that witness to the world by telling the story of Christ. That's one way we can understand witnesses. But the other way we can understand witnesses is to say, actually, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses to Christ's work in our lives. And what I mean by that is when you become a Christian, you're not simply one who has believed uh, some truths about God or believe the claims that Christ makes about himself. That is absolutely true if you're a Christian, but it is more than that. The Bible talks about the idea that you have been born again, that you've become a new person, that Christ has taken up residence in your life. If you've become a Christian, you have had an encounter with the living God, that God has reshaped who you are. He has changed you. He is in the process of changing you. And it is that encounter that experience that testifies to the reality that Christ is risen. How do we know that Christ is risen today is we have seen his work in your life, in drawing you to himself, in changing your heart, in bringing worship. Everyone who was worshiping there genuinely in, wor in, in worship as we were just worshiping just now, we say that is the result of God's work in your life. So you have not just believe some truths as essential as that is, but you have an encounter with the living God. You are a witness to God's work in your life. And so when I say Christ is, Christ is saying you are witnesses too, he's saying you have a responsibility to testify to what God has done and is doing in your life today. And we see this biblical pattern of testifying to God's work in our lives. You see it all the way through. You see it in Paul, all the way through the book of Acts. He, t he tells his story. And what's fascinating about that is, you think about who Paul is. He's an apologist, an evangelist, a thinker. He's written some of the most profound documents in all of Western history. So he has all the right arguments, but he doesn't always give arguments. Actually, sometimes he just simply tells his story. In Acts chapter 26, we find this, that he, he tells his story, he's, he's before Agrippa, and he starts by telling them, actually, no, I have no, nothing that disposed me to this story. I was not predisposed to it. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on to describe how he persecuted the church. And then he goes on and, and explains this profound moment in, on the road to Damascus where the Holy Spirit opens his eyes where he sees the risen Christ and he hears his voice. It says, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
He goes on to describe his encounter with the living God. And then he goes on and describes how he, he really all he's been doing is faith, faithfully discharging the responsibility that Christ gives him on the Damascus road. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea. Paul is testifying to the reality of what he's seen. And actually, the reason why this is so encouraging is because if you imagine your role in the world, Christ is not saying, I'm sending you as an advocate or an arguer or a a kind of lawyer and one who has to come up with all the right arguments and all the right apologetic arguments. There's a place for apologetics. But he's saying, no, I'm sending you as a witness. That is liberating. And because it says, actually, you just need to tell your story. You just need to describe like, what, what does a witness do in a court of law? They come to the, the, the stand and they just tell their story. They don't have to kind of think about how to configure it in the right way. They can just tell honestly what has happened. In the same way, when we are given this responsibility to be witnesses, we are just simply given the easy responsibility of telling what Christ has done in our lives. And that is liberating. So we say it's, it's liberating, but it's also, it glorifies God. It glorifies God whether or not the people you are telling respond appropriately. Because as you do it, you're celebrating all that God has done in your life. You can see this uh, in the Psalms. In Psalm 107, the Psalm is essentially a kind of remembrance of what God has done in the life of the people of God. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Saying, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What do they say? And whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. He's saying, basically, let the redeemed tell of their story of how he has gathered them in. And the psalm then goes on and describes how some wandered in desert wastes, and they were hungry and thirsty, and God drew them to himself. Some sat in darkness and the shadow of death, and they rebelled against God, and he drew them to himself. And it goes on. And he says, as you tell your stories, you point to the goodness of God, that he would draw you to himself. That's why we love baptisms. That's why we love to retell our stories, even inside the church, because we like to celebrate and consider all that God has done and how good he is, that he would draw men and women from all different angles. I think about my own last few weeks. I've met people who have, uh, one person who came to Christ when they got to a place of just rock bottom. They kind of said, look, I just got desperate and everything went wrong in my life. And it was at that moment I cried out to God and he's on a journey towards faith. And someone else who was saying, look, I was just going through the patterns of this world and I was pursuing all sorts of things that, that now I realize just felt empty to me. And that's what provoked them to come or to pursue Christ. Another who was uh, seeking comfort and kind of went online and was uh, trying to find something to encourage them and went on online service and then and they understood the gospel and, and God just opened their heart to it and they responded. Or one more who, who has no Christian background who uh, just went online and was kind of going through one of those kind of quote cycle things where they just give you different inspirational quotes and came across a quote from the Bible and, the, and then has been reading the Bible now on their own for about three years and without any kind of Christian community just from nowhere and has come to the place where they believe it's, it's, it's a most powerful book and God is speaking through it. That's incredible. Those are just about four stories in the last few weeks. And every time you hear those stories, it's an encouragement. It says God is at work. Isn't it, part, isn't it about celebrating and testifying to the goodness of God? And I think every one of you, if you're a believer in Christ, 
have stories to tell. And those stories have the power to impact other people's lives. Think about uh, what Paul says to the, the Thessalonians. He's celebrating what God has done in their life. But he says what's important is their story has impacted others. He says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, saying all around you people know of your faith in Christ. He's speaking to a group of people. Wouldn't it be amazing if they said that about Grace London? He said all around you, the people around you in Waterloo, they, they, they know of your faith in Christ. Perhaps because of the distinctive lives that we live, or perhaps the way we invite them in to experience some of God's love in our community. And it says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And what what he's saying is, the people around you have been provoked to consider Christ because they've seen the way that you have turned to him. Isn't that the same story we see in John chapter 4, where the woman at the well meets Christ and she goes back to her town and says, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did, effectively. And they are provoked. And then they meet Christ and come to believe. So we're not saying that your story is is everything someone needs to hear. But as they see the way God has been at work in your life, it's my expectation that some will be provoked to say, why are they different? Why, when I say hear your story, there will be a provocation. What kind of story? I think you have multiple stories to tell if you're a Christian. You perhaps have the story of coming to faith in Christ. Not just the details, but how did God change you? Or perhaps you have gone through suffering in your life. I think often as you tell the story of the difference that God made to your life in the midst of suffering, that will speak loudly to the people around you. I'm not saying that necessarily justifies the suffering you've been through. But I'm saying one good thing that can come from suffering is it can give you a story to speak to others of the direct and specific comfort that God has brought in your life as you have walked through that suffering. Or perhaps you just have stories of the way that God has changed you, of something that you struggled with, that over time you've experienced God's power to change you and shape you. Isn't that what our world is longing for? Power to change? Power to overcome the inner demons and the lies and all the different things that people struggle with? And here you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, experiencing God's work in your life. And that is something that speaks to the people around you. Sometimes we think, I don't have a very depraved or dramatic story. And think, well, I can't possibly share because I'm just normal. And actually, I think you're missing the point. We don't need to have a kind of remarkable story. I was, I was mainlining coke in the toilets when I had a vision of Christ. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Because the reason why your stories are powerful is because they are relatable. If you're an ordinary person who's had an encounter with the, with the uh, un- not ordinary God, the, the profound supernatural God, that in a sense is the story in itself. You don't need to have a remarkable story. You just need to be a normal person. That's true, but I hope good for most of you. There's, I believe there's something often a unique power in your story to be able to unlock something in a specific people's, someone else's life. And you only know that as you go and share your story and suddenly someone just says, that really connected with me. What you said to me there, that was really helpful. I think as you do this, you'll see God working and using you. And some of you say, well, I've never had an opportunity to do this. Or maybe I'm ready to do it, but I just don't know how. I don't know. I've got, never had an opportunity. It doesn't seem like anybody's interested in, in this. Well, I would say, are you transparently sharing your life with those around you? 
Are you being honest in a way that shows you that you are a human being? There's such a danger that Christians think they need to try and show this kind of moral perfection, that they need to show that they're perfect in order to be able to share. And some people almost well, I could never tell people I'm a Christian because my life is messy. And that's got it completely the wrong way around. Because the gospel says the living God comes to relate to those who are messy. That God comes and draws us, meets us in our mess and draws us to himself and forgives us and restores us. And so we don't need to wait to the point where we've reached a certain level of maturity or perfection in the Christian life. Rather, actually we can tell the stories about how Christ has met us in our mess, even amidst our current struggles. And that, by the way, is going to speak so much more loudly and profoundly to the people around you who know that they are, you know they are struggling with things just as you are struggling. So you need to be honest, you need to be transparent and share what's really going on in your life. The other question I'd ask you is, do you really love the people around you? Are you genuinely seeking to build deep, honest relationships with the people around you? We live in a world of screens, and many of you kind of work in kind of semi-hybrid, remote situations, but none of our witness happens in a vacuum. It happens through relationships, through the friendships and the context that God has put you in. And so actually, we need to be the kind of people who counterculturally push into relationships. Not because we say, I need to have a relationship so I can witness, but because we know that Christ has called us to love the people around us. And as we genuinely love them, as we seek to live a distinctive and other-centered life, Christ will provide us opportunities to speak and to share our story. But really, the question I have to ask you is, do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? We can talk all about technique and how to do this and give you training, but the central question is, do you want to be a witness for Christ? Unless you want to do this, you will never do it. And how do we want to do this? How do we make ourselves want to do it? Well, the central key to wanting to be a witness is, perhaps like many parts of the Christian life, enjoying God. Because this is a natural, organic overflow of your relationship with Christ. As you enjoy him, as you celebrate his goodness to you, as you live in a posture of gratitude, so you only naturally want to tell other people around him. As you think about when you go to a nice restaurant or go to a hotel or where it is, you think, when you go back and you think, I just want to tell people about that. It happens so organically, you don't even need to consciously do it. You just say, oh, you should go there, it was amazing. That is, that is something of what witness is in the Christian life. Just that we have tasted the goodness of Christ that we continue to taste his goodness to us. And so we cannot but not share what he has done in our lives. And so if there is a lack of desire to share this, you have to go back to your desire for Christ. Are you walking in a posture of gratitude as Andrew began the sermon service? Like the leper who came back to Christ to say thank you. Is there actual genuine warmth for Christ in your heart? Do you actually feel a sense of gratitude for everything that he's done in your life? It's not to say if you don't feel it, you just forgive up. As he says, we have all sorts of disciplines in the Christian life that feed and foster and drive that desire in our lives so that we live an authentic Christian life, so that we're willing to go through the opposition and the hardship that the Christian life involves. It requires that you feel an affection and desire and gratitude towards Christ. But I said this is not just an invitation. This is a promise. 
Christ is saying, you cannot do this on your own. The scale of the task ahead of the apostles was huge, and it is for us too. And the only way that makes sense to that is that Christ is promising to empower us. We say, this is hard. When we think about the opposition that we might face, or the embarrassment, or all sorts of uh, just the kind of awkwardness of, of being honest and deep about our lives with other people, we say, this is hard. But Christ knows this is hard. That's why he's so emphatic to the apostles that they must wait for him for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Three times in this period does Christ say that to them. In verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, in Acts 1.8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Back at the end of Luke's gospel, we hear him say the same thing. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's almost like, how many ways do you need to say it? You cannot do this on your own. Christ is speaking to the apostles saying, do not try and go and change the world on your, in your own strength. Isn't that such a danger, kind of an activist Christianity that says, we are here and we're going to show everyone around us why they're wrong and to, to change the world in our own strength? Christ is saying, no, you can't do that. You need my Holy Spirit. You need my empowerment. Think about the bizarre irony of what Christ is saying to them. This is the apostles who spent 40 uh, spent 40 days with him after his resurrection, have been hearing all about, they've understood the scriptures as he explained to them, shown them that he had to die and be resurrected. They spent three years with him before that. They've got everything, haven't they? I'm ready now to go and kind of beat the world over the head with the Bible and basically tell them why they're wrong. He says, no, my teaching is not enough. You need my spirit. You need my spirit. You're going to experience opposition. You're going to experience hardships. And in order to be able to endure through that hardship, you need my Holy Spirit. Remember, this is Christ's promise that he will accomplish what he has set out to do through them. It's right at the beginning. It's, in, it's, it's really important that we see that right at the beginning of the book of Acts, this is actually a moment of seeing the majesty of Christ. The fact that Christ is ruling and reigning and orchestrating his mission. You see this moment of ascension, of him going up into the sky. It is almost like a, a moment of enthronement as they see Christ high and lifted up. He's been raised up, they use that language of being raised up, of one who we rightly worship. It speaks of him going into a cloud. It speaks, that's, a, that's a language that is reminiscent of Daniel. It speaks of the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As we begin this great mission, 
as we set out on this task of bringing witness to Christ's work in our lives, it is absolutely essential that we remember that Christ is sovereign, that this is the great Son of Man who has an everlasting dominion, who has been lifted up before his people. And so it is only right that we go and proclaim his lordship. But it is right that we see all the way through the book of Acts that Christ is orchestrating his mission. You see it here as he tells them exactly how the mission is going to unfold, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. You see it all the way through the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit guides the apostles and leads them in different directions. Think about Acts 13 when they're worshiping. While they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The Antioch church, send, they send out Paul and Barnabas on the first mission trip. The Lord is directing, and you see that all the way through the book of Acts. As we set out on the mission of God, as we set out on the impossible human task of seeing hearts changed around us, of seeing the people around us be drawn to Christ, it is essential that we have a high view of the sovereignty and power of the living God. If we don't have that, we will never try to accomplish this. We'll never try to be witnesses. We say, what's the point? And the point is because God is making his appeal through us. God promises to orchestrate his mission and to draw men and women to himself through his people. And that promise is true today as it was true for them. I love this about the book of Acts, that we see again and again the opposition that they face will not thwart God's plans. Quite the opposite. Actually, God uses the opposition to establish his purposes. So I think about the moment in um, Acts chapter 7 where the Paul, before he's Paul, when he's Saul, and, uh, and the Jews are, are persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem. And they, are, and they are scattered. What does that mean? They have to basically move, run for their lives, so to speak. That many of them move from Jerusalem and go all around the, the, the local region out of fear, one imagines, or at least out of wanting to preserve their lives. But what happens because of that scattering? Well, we read later, both in Acts chapter 8 and Acts 11, that God uses that scattering to spread his church. That the very people who go and leave Jerusalem because of the persecution they're experiencing, go keep on preaching about Christ. And as they do that, the church is established in Antioch and the, and the gospel is preached in the surrounding area. It's like when you um, blow on a dandelion and you watch all the seeds spread there's a moment of persecution, moments of persecution, but God's purposes continue as he uses that. He uses even the persecution. What, God intend, what humans intend for evil, God uses for good. And he establishes his purposes despite the opposition they face. So you must hear this then, saying Christ is sovereign and Christ promises his Holy Spirit. My question, brothers and sisters, is are we pursuing and hungering after the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Are we, are we hearing the promise of Christ that says, I invite you to receive my Spirit. I promise I will bring my Spirit to you to give you the power. I will give you power to be my witnesses. How does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, it's not it's not kind of anti-rational. It's not that the Holy Spirit kind of grabs hold of you and just kind of d achieves his will despite you. Actually, what it is is the Holy Spirit mediates the promises of God to us, reminds us of the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, 5, it says, the Holy Spirit has put essentially the words to the effect of 
The Holy Spirit has poured out the love of God into our hearts. It says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Holy Spirit, as we experience God's work in our lives through the Holy Spirit, we are reminded of the love of God. And that love of God becomes like a, a kind of protective layer, so to speak, a kind of a life jacket that enables us to withstand the rejection and the opposition of others. It enables us to overcome our fears. Perfect love casts out fear. As we experience the love of Christ, as we experience the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, as we remember the promises of God and the Holy Spirit brings them to mind, so to speak, as we experience this love, we are empowered to go into the world with no fear of what people think of us. Just for a moment, think of what your life would be like if you didn't experience fear of man. If you didn't worry what people thought of you. If you were willing and able just to share honestly your, your thoughts and your faith without reference, without caring what people think. Oh, it would be a beautiful sight to see the people of God liberated and that is what I think the Holy Spirit brings in the book of Acts. You see that. They are liberated to share. Peter is transformed. Paul goes from a murderous, hating man to a man full of love, full of a willingness to give up his life for the living God. The Holy Spirit transforms us in all sorts of ways, but one of the key ways is showing us, revealing to us deeply within our hearts the love of God. And that love both sends us out into the world and speaks directly to our fears. So we experience boldness, we experience love, we experience joy. Andrew shared this when he talked about the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago. But I just think it's a beautiful scene. Acts 16. The, the, um, Paul is in chains in Acts 16, and uh, he's, he's in Philippi, and it's midnight. You know, imagine the, the prison cell, it's all dirty and really unattractive, not a nice place to be. And it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And just lovely, wonderful juxtaposition that they are in the middle of prison, and what are they doing? They are singing praises to God. They are joyful. The Holy Spirit brings joy. As we spend time in God's presence, as we pursue him, we experience his love, we experience his promises, we experience his joy. That makes us the kind of people who are willing to go out into the world. And see, I think behind our lack of witness is a kind of complacency, a kind of sense of we don't really need God. You see that in the church all the time with our prayerlessness in the West, that we kind of think, I can get on with this on my own. But to which Jesus says, no, you need my spirit. And it's not just you need my spirit, you need to be saturated by me. This language of being baptized in the spirit, it speaks of like a sponge being filled up with water, being totally saturated. Which of us would not want more of God in us? Which of us wouldn't want to be saturated by the presence of God? Don't we want this? Don't we want this promise of being saturated by the living God, of being filled, of being changed from the inside, and being sent out into the world in boldness, full of love, and with no fear? 
But when we talk about the Holy Spirit, there's such a danger. We say, well, what do I do now? And the, the way I think you see whether or not people respond to this is by their attitude to prayer. The fascinating thing in this passage is that their response to Christ's promise is prayer. That he speaks to them, and what do they go and do? Acts 1.14, all these of one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Jesus is speaking to them, and he's ascended 40 days after um, his uh, death and resurrection. The day of Pentecost takes place 50 days later. There's a gap of about 10 days where basically the early church is praying together. Luke's gospel says the same thing. At the end of Luke's gospel, the last line is describing, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. We think about the day of Pentecost and we just think it's this moment, this random moment of God kind of showing up. But they say, no, actually the church was birthed on its knees. The people of God are praying for about seven to ten days, asking God to move, praising God, delighted with what they've seen, but praying. The way we know that a people of God desire the work of the Holy Spirit amongst them is prayer. The way we know the people of God actually recognize their dependence on the living God and believe that Christ is orchestrating his mission is their attitude to prayer. See, this looks like a great invitation to witness, and it is. It is a calling to take hold of Christ's invitation to be his witnesses. But it's also an invitation to prayer. It's also an invitation to be the people of God on our knees saying, Lord, we need you. We need your power amongst us. None of us is the full package in and of ourselves. We say, God, we need your work changing our hearts. We need your work to come and change us and empower us for your mission. It's not a one-time thing. This is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. This is the ongoing posture, and it starts with dependence. Brothers and sisters, are we dependent? We have a prayer meeting every Sunday. Come and join us before the services. Come and call out to God with us, saying, God, we need you. We need your work amongst us. Do we depend on God, or are we complacent? So, brothers and sisters, hear the invitation that Christ is making to you. I think for some of us, this genuinely starts with repentance. It's saying, God, I have, I, I have neglected and ignored your invitation to be your witness. I've neglected and ignored your invitation to be a witness. But some of us, repentance is the right response. Surrender. Saying, God, I want to be used by you. Some of you have given up on the mission of God. I want to invite you to take up your cross again, to take up again the responsibility to be his witness. Some of you say, the best response here is just to say to God, I need you, to hear his promise, to empower you by his spirit, and to say, God, would you come and work amongst us? Would you make us these bold and powerful and resilient people that we see in the book of Acts, willing to go out relentlessly, intentionally, not passively, but pursuing urgently the call to go and to spread the news of Christ in the world? Make us bold and passionate people for the living God. That's really our prayer. Let me pray.